change the world. If you talk to the experts, they'll give you focus groups, they'll show you polls and studies, tell you apply for some grants, look for some big donors' money. Things get carved up, studied, categorized, talked about. It's business as usual in the world we live in. But take a step back, be honest. All that work, how much really changes? Now, God is changing the world. Connecting one person to another and another, and this group to that one. One church to another, which is where we come in. He built us exactly for this time, for this moment, for these relationships. Like Desjard in Brazil, ministering by boat along the Amazon River. A niece in Haiti, helping develop three new training centers. Or Clement and Martin, leading a cohort of leaders in South Africa. God has brought us together, and we give them what He gave us. And these connections, one after another after another, make a movement. And a movement is how God changes the world. So we're at a tipping point in the life of our church and in our very world in which we live. Last weekend, if you were here, Pastor Joel, even if you weren't here, Pastor Joel talked about the tipping point and what that means for us, how that works in our lives and kind of unpack that in, uh, in, a, in a longer process than we normally give to this sort of thing. And I want to encourage you to, if you didn't see last week's uh, sermon, didn't hear it, uh, I, I want to encourage you to go to our website and, and listen to that sermon. Rarely will you hear one preacher referring you to another, but in this case, I, I would do that every week. But you, should, uh, you definitely need to take it in because Pastor Joel really unpacked the context for what this means for us as a church. And so I'm going to do that in a, in a hopefully a much abbreviated fashion because it plays into, it flows into what we're trying to do together as the body of Christ. A tipping point is an exciting concept to me to think about the way that has happened in history in various times. What it simply means is that when, when a movement is getting ready to happen, and there comes a point in that movement where it could go either way. It could stop or it could go forward. It could go either way. And it tips in the direction in which it's going to go. And we believe that God has done that several times in the life of Northland. We see that God has done that a number of times in history down through the ages. But we're pretty sure we're very sure that we're at a significant tipping point in the life of our church in Northland, a church distributed. And so let me just give you an example of what that looked like, though, first of all, in Scripture itself. In John chapter 15, if you have your Bible, you can follow along just so you know I'm not making this stuff up. But in John chapter 15, Jesus has just finished this. The, the sacrament with the disciples has just finished the Passover meal. And he's been gathered with not only the 12, but others who were in the room with him that day. And they, they had partaken of that. And Jesus held up the bread and the cup and reminded them what that was and said that, you know, this is his body, his blood being given for us, poured out for us. 
And right after that, he closes out that meal and there's, and then they walk to the garden of Gethsemane. And the garden of Gethsemane is the place where Jesus would be, as you know, he would be betrayed. He would be arrested. He would first pray. And it was there that the events began to unfold and there was no going back from that point forward. Jesus prayed to the Father, if, if there's any other way, let it be so, but not my will, but yours be done. That was a tipping point. And he couldn't go back after that. But there is this little space in between that sacrament and that prayer. That is the space. If you saw those dominoes fall in that video and you know that one hits one and then hits another and hits another and pretty soon they all fall down. There's this little space in between just before it hits the next domino that something unique and mysterious happens. And there is that very thing that happens in John 15. We don't know if Jesus was walking along with the disciples and said this. We don't know if he was walking along and stopped and maybe just said, you know, there's one last thing, one last thing to tell you before we get into that garden. And it's this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. This is my command, love each other. And then the domino falls and they go into the garden and it's a point of no return. Margaret Mead once said that we should never underestimate the power of a group of thoughtful, committed citizens to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has changed the world. Well, we likewise should never ever underestimate the power of thoughtful, committed disciples, followers of Jesus to change the world because it's the only way the world has changed is when the people of God follow the commands of God and do the will of God and see the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's a tipping point and that's where we are. 
Last week, Pastor Joel unpacked this for you and told you that we're doing this. We've actually been working on it for 15 years. This is no flash in the pan kind of an idea that like all of a sudden somebody woke up one day and said, I know what we should do. Let's do a distributed church thing, you know. No, this has been 15 years that we've been talking about this, praying about this. Our elders have been, have been processing this and praying about it, and Pastor Joel has as well, and we as a team have as well. And here's what it means that there came though a tipping point, this place that less than 18 months ago, we said, you know, we partner with 74 missionaries around the world and 12 significant ministries that are located in various parts of the world. But we don't say much at all to our congregation about what the distributed church is locally, right here where we live. We just have kind of created this kind of consumer mentality that, well, you all just come on in here to these rooms, to this room or to one of those rooms there, and, and we'll just do everything for you. And we began to really pray about that and grapple with that and talk about what does that mean? What's that mean for you? This is a very personal thing. What's that mean for each of us as disciples, as followers of Jesus? And so God did this amazing thing. He began to form us into not only this big church, but into very personal churches as well. And almost with, before we knew it, there were over 60 distributed churches in Central Florida that raised up. We'd love to say we planted 60 churches. God did though. God raised up over 60 churches here locally in Central Florida. In this graphic, you can see that we see Lake County, Longwood, and Oviedo as hubs. Those are centers of ministry for resourcing. But each of those orange or red dots, depending on how good your color is, um, those are existing distributed churches in central Florida. The correctional facilities, some of which are online with us right now, and over the course of the weekend, there are seven different correctional facilities. You're the church. You're the church right there where you are. And each of you, those are the green dots there. We're expanding that in significant ways over the coming months, not only to take in, to be with and, and worship with all of the adult correctional facilities, but moving into the juvenile correctional facilities as well, because that's where the church should be. We want to be there with you. And so that has just happened. We've had the correctional facilities. And then each of those black dots represent conversations that are going on right now with literally some hundreds of people around this community who are saying, you know, I think God's calling me to form the church around me with people I know, with my people. And we'll still come to the big church. But God's calling me to live my life around a group of people that are a personal church, a distributed church. And we're seeing that happen right before our eyes. And, and so we started thinking, well, we are here in Central Florida, this hub, we are a training center, a resourcing center. And so we started looking at, so what's God doing outside of this area? 
and we realize that what God has called us to and, and have, has developed over the course of the last 20 or 25 years are significant relationships in places all around the world. And we began to pray about that. How do we continue to love and care for these folks all around the world? And so we thought, well, we're a local distributed training center right here in Central Florida. But we launched three other distributed training centers over the course of the last year. One of them is in Cuba. I've been there many times and, and I know these leaders and these men and women who have been forming the church and forming a network of churches across the island. Before anything opened up, they were doing God's work. They opened up. And that is a, a distributed training center that has now been formed where these pastors are being cared for and equipped and encouraged and, and curriculum is developed. As well as in Haiti, Nathan Price is here this morning somewhere and Nathan opened up, there he is right there. Nathan opened up to us a group of pastors, over 60 churches in Haiti that we went down together and, uh, and began to talk to these pastors and they don't need us except they do need each other. And we realized in the course of talking to them that we need them for what we can learn from them. And so in Haiti, a distributed training center has been formed. I've met these men and women. They love Jesus. In South Africa, the Vredelus Church, which we've partnered with for 20 years, they heard this vision. Pastor Leon there said, I think this is the way we'll reach South Africa, is to see churches planted all across South Africa. He led us into other places as well, but they formed a distributed training center. I've met these people. They love Jesus and they're passionate about this vision and they're doing this vision today with us. And so those are established distributed training centers. I'll remind you that these are not necessarily buildings. These are networks of churches that communicate and work with uh, each other on, on joint projects. But in, with those that are established, we also have a number of them in development that we are trusting God to, that they will come online, they will be fully formed over the course of the next year. And those in development are in Uganda, Egypt, Ukraine, Sri Lanka, Honduras, Swaziland, Brazil, and New Mexico. And these are well on their way to being formed. And over the next year, we are, we are sure that God is leading us to, to help nurture them into development and, and that's going to happen. And then we have a number of others that are in what we call in discovery. We have significant relationships and partnerships with these folks. And we are sharing this vision with them. And they're just a couple of steps behind, though, the ones that are in development. And we think that within the next two years, they will come online as distributed training centers that will plant many, many thousands of churches in China, South Korea, Mexico, Nigeria, India, Russia, Pakistan, Indonesia, Philippines, Argentina, and New York City. And those are on their way and are coming. I just was, I just, uh, Bill Geary, who's one of our online ministers, is just chatting this morning with some folks in Pakistan who are online worshiping with us right now. Welcome to you guys. Yeah, and 
And they're hearing, you're hearing this same vision and saying, we want this in our country. We're going to do this in our country. And they're looking to us and we're like, awesome. And they're saying, what's the next step? And we say, not sure. We're listening just like you are for that next step. We do know this though. Last weekend, Joel Hunter talked about money more than he's probably talked about money in 30 years that he's been here. And I know it ticked off some of you. We heard from you. We're storing those emails. Don't worry. Um, and we're going to get back to you. And I'm going to talk about money again. And I know you're sitting there stewing a little bit about that. Two weeks in a row. What is the deal? Well, here's the deal. Here's our call and we believe that this is what God has called us to do and has told us to tell you. We don't have a choice in this. It's that this, that you should take, we should take our next step in our giving journey. What's that mean for us? Well, if you don't give, start giving. That's your first step. And that's a step of just trust, of trusting God to help you do that and to know how to do it. If you have started giving, consider consistently giving. Give more often. And that, in fact, is being intentional about your finances and setting aside some funds that you will make as part of your worship that you offer back to God. If you consistently give, consider tithing as your next step. Tithing is the biblical standard for giving 10% of our income back to God's purposes and for his use. And if you're a tither, which is a step of faithfulness, then consider extravagant giving, meaning giving beyond what even makes sense to you. That's hilarious giving. That's joyful giving of like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this. That's hilarious, extravagant giving. And for that, that's a step of celebration. Our goal in this is that everyone in the congregation would participate in taking their next step in their giving. And so if we each do that, if we respond by taking the next step, that's going to help us to accomplish some financial things that will also help us accomplish some of these developmental things. So if we all do take the next step, where will the money go that comes in? Well, I'm glad you want to know. Here's where it'll go. The first thing, the first $3 million goes toward these distributed training centers that are in development right now. Why do you need to pay for something where you're not building a building and, and, and uh, hiring staff? Glad you want to know. Uh, and here's where that money goes. It goes for training materials. It goes for translation. It goes for technology infrastructure, for communication. Some of these places we have to figure out how to get the internet to where they are because we need that for this process. It's in-country training conferences. It's support for some key indigenous leaders within those countries. And it's for some travel for teams that will go and, and teach various things and help develop various ministries within those countries. So the first three million goes there. As the elders prayed about this though, we also realized if we're gonna do this and be serious about it, we need to pay off this building. It's just the right thing to do. You know, we've consistently paid down the debt here, but we can't tell you that you should live debt free 
and then for us to go on living under a debt. That we pay, uh, we have a ridiculously low interest rate, but we still spend about a million dollars, over a million dollars a year on debt service. And so the second part thing we want to do is over the course of these next two years, pay off this building, that'll be about $14 million. And the, the million dollars that that saves us and the extra money that comes in through that, we will use in these developing distributed training centers and in these conversations that we're having. And this is money that, that is additional funds that goes along with our current budget. Our current budget is around $11.5 million a year. That money funds all the existing ministry that we already do and will continue to do. Things, everything from our worship gatherings to the ministry within correctional facilities to our anti-human trafficking initiatives to homeless, uh, eliminating homelessness, to, and the care center we do, the Life Hope, all of those things to continue on to fund those initiatives that are already going on. And again, that's, the, that's what our budget is over the next two years. And so this comes out to a figure that you could do the math and see it's one big number. But I'm going to leave the number out of the middle for a moment. Because I'd love for you just to consider what is this really worth for us to do this? Is there any benefit really to us doing this? Is God going to be pleased if we do this? Or is this just another church doing a campaign, raising money? Well, we're going to see, aren't we, over these next two years. We're going to see what God does. This is a step of trust and faith. And believe me, all of us are doing this with some fear and trembling involved. Because it's a tipping point. And it could go either way. But we're confident that God has called us to do this. We would love for you. We know you'll have questions about this. We have a website that's been set up, tippingpoint.northlandchurch.net. You can go to that website. You can ask any question you have. And the reason that we want you to ask the questions is we have nothing hidden. There's no hidden agenda in this. And everything is in also in this brochure. You can pick one up as you leave today if you don't have one. This is different than the worship guide you were handed as you came in. But go to the website. Look at the information there. Ask your questions. Push back as hard as you want to. Because this is about us going through this together. Let us know if you sense God telling you something different. Because we're listening together for what God wants us to do. But I'll promise you this. Change the way you think about giving. And it'll change your life. Let me show you one example of that in some friends of mine, Thomas and Deanna. Since we begin tithing, it, it has become a priority for us based off of what we learn by going to church and by listening to God's word. We're the Smiths and we've been attending Northern for over six years. 
Well, we were first attending another church here locally, and it was a little bit further away. And there was a lot of things going on with that local church along with the distance. And I had a friend, a neighbor in our neighborhood, and said, just, just go try Northwood. I mainly went to church with my grandparents, and they were real big in tithing. So at the church, they passed a collection that would give me change, and I would put it in the collection plate as it went around. So it kind of instilled in me, but my wife, I have to say, she pushes it much more than I did. So now we're definitely both on the same page. Growing up, um, tithing, my, my, my dad tithed. He would speak about tithing, not directly to us, but just the churches we attended. Um, it was always mentioned in a sermon. So I've been tithing pretty much since I you know, was able to have an income. So since we've been at Northland, we've been consistently tithing. And so we budget our tithing to come out once we get paid. So it comes out as soon as, you know, we're deposited, it comes out that same Friday that we get paid. And recently we just increased our tithing from our net to our gross. With the, with the recent increase in our tithing, um, I feel that I have more trust and the things that the Lord is going to provide for me and my family now than I had in the past. Now, I've always had trust and always believe that he will always make a way for us to know that no matter what, no matter what obstacle, no matter whether it's job, family, we're going to be okay just by obeying and being obedient to what he wants us to do. So the kids, um, just recently actually, we've just been talking to the kids about tithing, uh, actually even giving them numbers, if you make 500, What's one tenth of that? Um, so just recently, they especially since we increased our um, tithing, uh, we've just been quizzing them on that and letting them know that this is in the Bible, and God asked us for ten percent. There is something I believe called God's math. If it's the extra thirty or fifty dollars to get to that ten percent, or or whatever amount that you are trusting God for, you know you can do your budget the exact same way, and it's a step of faith of trust. It's the next step to trusting God. Try it, see what will happen. You will not miss it and you will be blessed. By tithing, I think it strengthened my relationship with God even more. And I truly believe that it's something that I should do because growing up, I didn't have much. And even though it wasn't tithing, he always helped me out. I grew up in the projects with nothing. I'm in a wonderful house with a wonderful family. And I feel the least I can do is give back for what he did for me growing up, even when I didn't fully understand what tithing was. But he stayed with me and gave me a wonderful life. And I will continue to tithe and continue to trust because I know he'll always be there. I love the wisdom Thomas shared with us there that the more you give, the more you learn to trust. That trust isn't built from us holding on and holding things close. Trust is built by opening up our hands, by opening up our lives even. Jesus came so that we would begin to understand that he is calling us to a whole different way of living. And throughout this Tipping Point series, you'll 
You'll hear this each week. We're, we're working up to uh, October 31st weekend where we're going to give you a card, a commitment card, and ask you to spend a couple of weeks praying over that, what God's calling you to do, what's your next step in this. But in these weeks, as we get ready for that, we just, we're going to continue to tell you that, yeah, it sounds a whole lot about money, but it's a whole lot about your life. It's a whole lot about not only how you pray, which is what Pastor Joel taught us last week, it reorients our prayer life. It also reorients the way we think about giving. And it will reorient the way we think about living as well, about our life itself. You know that most of our relationships are transactional relationships, right? Does that term make sense to you that there's a transaction involved in, our, in your relationship with most everyone in your life? That there is something that the other person has that you want or there's something you have that they want and usually, sometimes it's verbal, sometimes it's non-verbally agreed upon, but you're exchanging something to get something back. That's a transactional relationship. You know, I have a transactional relationship in a, in a lot of areas of my life. Like, for instance, with my barber, you know, I have a transactional relationship. I mean, this doesn't just happen, you know. But I go to my barber and we have an understanding that we've talked about from time to time. You know, he's going to do his best uh, to help me, you know, and he's going to work on my head. And, and while he does that, we're going to have small talk. We're going to not talk about anything of any real significance, you know. We're going to talk about are the Chicago Cubs finally going to break the curse and, and win the World Series? And we agree they are, that this is the year, it's, it's tipping point year for them. And, and we talk about this stuff and then he finishes up, he does the best he can with what I've given him to work with. And then, you know, I pay him the $6.50 that I owe him. I throw in a 50 cent tip because I'm just that kind of guy. You know, and I walk out happy and I assume he's happy. You know, but that's been a transactional relationship. And that's well and good for goods and services in our life. But if that's how we relate to one another, that's not going to work to create any kind of depth of relationship in our life. It's certainly not the relationship that Jesus himself told us about when he said, listen, I call you friends. You're not a servant of mine. Now, they would go on and call themselves servants. They wanted to be servants. Paul continually identified himself as a doulos, a servant, a bond slave of Christ. But Jesus said, taught then and is teaching us now that everything has changed in how we think about payment. Because usually in a transactional relationship, not usually, always in a transactional relationship, there is some form of payment. It may be cash, it may be emotional payment, it may be rejection or acceptance. There's all kinds of payment structures in a transactional relationship. Jesus came along and turned that all around 
Even in how we see our own lives, in Matthew 16, Jesus said it this way to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a rhetorical question. Few of us are going to sell our souls knowingly. But many of us sell our souls unknowingly. Because we're not paying attention to what Jesus has said we're to do and how we're to live our lives. Not in transactions, but rather in generosity. That what Jesus said is he came to teach us generosity in relationships. Doing more than the other person deserves or even knows that they need. For while, it says this in Romans 5, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where's the transaction in that relationship? How much did you pay for salvation? Nothing. How much did God pay to give you salvation? Everything, everything. So that's, genera that's generosity in relationship. And Christians, that's what we've been called to do. That's why when Pete read from that letter, a hundred years after the formation of the church in Acts chapter 2, they were still describing the Christians as people who were devoted to one another, who cared for one another, and not only that, cared for anyone else, anyone else who needed to be cared for. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And what this resulted in was the whole community then looking at them and saying, there's something different about these people. I fear that many times they look at us now and say, there's something different about these people and it's not a compliment. It just means that we've gotten weird in some of the ways we relate to a culture that doesn't understand us. And so the way we change that is to do what they did then, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved because the people around that community saw something in them that they couldn't get anywhere else because they couldn't pay for it. It was generosity. That's what God's called us to in our relationships. What happens with our generosity? When we are generous in relationship, it builds up treasure and it builds up trust. 
Matthew 6, Jesus says, Don't store up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What are the treasures in heaven? What are they? They're people. They're people that are in heaven. As a result of generosity in our relationships, and the way we live our lives. So it builds up our treasure. As Thomas taught us, it builds up our trust in God because we have a new way of understanding payment. Payment comes through the generosity of Jesus himself. And from there, then we understand that trust itself comes from building that up, making more deposits than we make withdrawals in our relationships. And it also is found in the righteousness of living our lives with one another in a way that we've heard here many times that the, the definition of righteousness is meeting the demands of a relationship. Now, not the demands like you take out the trash or I won't love you anymore. That's not the demand of a relationship, but meeting the demands, knowing someone well enough to know that what you do for them is what they need done and not just what you feel comfortable in doing. That's meeting the demands of a relationship. And so where trust comes from is from truth, is that there's a little quote in your worship guide of of C.S. Lewis quoting Ralph Waldo Emerson who wrote an amazing essay on friendship and he said that essentially it's that when two people or a group of people can face the same truth, are identified by, by the same truth that we embrace the same truth, that builds up trust over time. Let me give you an example of that in the life of, in our life together that you may even not be aware of. But I mentioned to you earlier that one of the distributed training centers in development is in New Mexico. There's some folks online right now from New Mexico and I, yeah, that's good to do that for them. And let me tell you what happened, how this came about. There's a young man who grew up in this church named Chris Piramali. His family's still here. Chris grew up here and, and went to medical school, met his wife there, two doctors married, and they felt called to go and, and, be, and be physicians among uh, Native American people, which I was so thankful that they chose to do that. And they've done that in different tribes. And they moved to New Mexico and among the Zuni uh, Indian uh, reservation there. And when Chris and, and Barb got there, they, they were the only physicians for this entire people group there in New Mexico and in a very isolated part of New Mexico. And Chris called me one day and said, you know, there's really no church, there's no Christian presence anywhere that I can find in this tribe. And Barb and I worship online, but, but I wonder what, wonder what it would take to have a church, somebody come out here and start a church. And I said, well, God's already sent somebody out there to start a church. 
you. He sent you out there to start a church. And so long story short, Chris and Barb, they began just to open up their home and say, anybody wants to come, we're going to have a meal together, we're going to do communion together, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible together, and hang out, hang out and, and be together. You know, and they started doing that on Thursday nights. And they were surprised at first there were five or six people that came because this is a community that's very fractured. 40% of their population is incarcerated in this community. And so they, they were very fractured and people were very suspicious, but Chris and Barb stayed put. They persevered there. And before you know it, they had 50 or 60 people coming to their home, more people than they could accommodate in their small home. And so they moved it to a community center and to their great surprise, the tribal elders said that they could use the community center, which they had never done before. But it's because of the trust that Chris and Barb had built up in that community by serving that community, community in a generous way. But then about a year and a half ago, uh, or uh, yeah, about a year and a half ago, Chris and Barb felt called to move to another Indian reservation in Alaska because of a lack of medical care in that reservation. And so Chris called back and said, I think, you know, we're going to do this and we need to do it and it's the right thing to do. And what do we do about our church? And I said, well, is there another leader? And he said, yeah, there's a, there's a math teacher in the school here. His name is Tim and seems to be a, a really capable guy. And, and so I said, well, let's talk to Tim. And so we talked to Tim and, and then Tim said, well, I don't have the same standing with the tribe that Chris and Barb has, so I think we have to take this to the tribal elders to get their permission to do this. And I said, okay, well, let us know how that goes. And he says, no, we need you to do it. We need you to meet with them. And I said, why would they listen to us? And Tim said, because of Chris and Barb. They've built trust here, and, they'll, and Chris and Barb are saying, we can trust you. And so I said, great, how do we do that? And so we decided we would Skype and have a meeting with what I thought was gonna be two or three of the tribal elders. And there were three of us in a room here and we set up a time one evening to Skype with them. And when, the, when we turned on the, on the screen, their whole tribal council was sitting there. It was a bit of a shock, you know, at first, you know, and, and, we, real, and we began to talk and the first thing they started talking about is, do you guys know anything about caring for people who are in jail, in prison? I said, well, yeah, we do. It's a big deal to us. And so they said, we need help there. And then we talked about other things. And so they, they said, well, we, we want to do this, but we need you to come out here. So November 2nd, three of us are going to New Mexico to meet with them and take the next step. It's just the next step, but we're sure this is something God is doing in our midst. And we're so thankful for it.
And do you realize again, this is you. This is you doing this. You're making this possible. And so that's New Mexico. And we are building up trust and we're trying to do that in every one of these places. But let me tell you what trust requires. Trust requires great courage. Because it's a lot easier to live your life transactionally than it is generously. It takes great courage. If you've read any of Brene Brown's work in this area, you know that what courage looks like in my life, in your life, is vulnerability. Being willing to be open. Being open enough that you can be wrong, that you can be hurt, that you can be betrayed. Look at Jesus' life. Courage. Vulnerability. And this is a harder thing to define because it looks different in everybody's life because we're all in the process of taking our next step in each of these areas. And for some of us, it's a lot harder than it is others. I'm just gonna tell you one last story. There's a guy named Tom Black, who Tom is a, is, has become a good friend of mine. Tom, uh, years ago worked for, he started an organization called the Willow Creek Association. He's, he works with George Barna in research and he's, he's leading an organization right now that's, that's also wanting to plant churches all over the world. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches all over the world. And so we've realized that we have a real common agenda here. And so we're meeting often and talking a lot. And Tom uh, was down here this week meeting with us and talking about some things that we could do and best practices and whatnot. Tom is 60 years old. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, he's the most passionate, one of the most passionate men I've ever met in my life. There is nothing he is not passionate about. You bring up any subject, he's passionate about it. He's especially passionate about the Chicago Cubs. I don't know if I've mentioned them yet, but he's especially passionate about, about Chicago. He lives in Chicago. And so Thursday he was here and we were talking about something and he told me this story and I asked his permission to tell you the story and here's the story. So Tom, last year at Christmas season had just come home back to Chicago from a conference where he was speaking. He had spoken several times. He was really tired. And Tom uh, got home and as soon as he walked in the door, his wife Debbie said, let's go to the mall. And he said, I don't want to go to the mall. And she said, no, let's go to the mall. You've been gone three, several days. Let's go to the mall. You can ride. We'll ride together, you know, catch up. You know, and Tom said, okay, I'll go to the mall but I'm gonna to go to the food court, I'm gonna get a cup of coffee, I'm gonna take my book, and I'm gonna not talk to anybody. If somebody sits down at the table, I'm not talking to them. I'm, I'm totally gonna, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not gonna engage anyone, and I'm not going to any stores, and I'm not talking to any salespeople. You're on your own with that. And Debbie said, that's fine, you know, you can, you can do that. Now Tom, let me just tell you, is a very extroverted guy for the most part, but he was really tired. And he said, I did not want to go and I didn't want to see anyone. And so they get to the mall and it's this tall, it's this four story mall in downtown Chicago where you walk in on the fourth level of the mall. And so Tom says when, they, when he walks into the mall and he looks down 
to the center court, to the bottom floor. It's Christmas season, and Santa land is set up down there. Tom looks over, and he sees Santa. And he said, for reasons that he cannot explain, his heart just leapt out of his chest. And he said to Debbie, I've got to go down and talk to Santa. <laughs> and Debbie said, I thought you said you didn't want to talk to anybody, you know? And you're going to go talk to Santa? Are you crazy? And he says, I've just got to go talk to Santa. And she said, well, what are you going to say? And he said, I don't know. She said, well, why are you going? He said, I don't know. I just have to. And so Tom, Debbie says, well, I'm going shopping. So Tom goes down the four escalators, gets to the bottom, walks up, two elves standing there. He says to one of the elves, I want to talk to Santa. And the elf said, where are your kids? And he said, I don't have any with me. And she said, so just you want to talk to Santa? And he said, yeah, I want to talk to him. What do you want to talk to him about? I don't know. And she said, well, I'm going to have to confer. And so she confers with her other elves. And then she comes back and says, you're not going to hurt him? And he said, no, I'm not. I just want to see, just want to talk to him. And she said, okay, but you can only talk for a few minutes because he's very busy, as you can see. And he says, that's fine. And so she ushered him into winter wonderland. It looked like a snow globe. It was a clear big bubble with artificial snow flying around. And there were three kids in front of him in line. And he walks in and they all look up at him and he's like, hey kids, you know, and they don't talk. They don't respond in any way, which boys and girls, right thing to do, stranger danger. Don't talk to somebody you don't know, even if it's Tom Black. And so, the, the boys, you know, each of the boys and girls, they go in and, then, and finish. And then the elf comes to Tom and says, okay, sir, um, it's your turn. And uh, you can go in now. And so um, he starts walking in. And as he starts walking in, he's looking at Santa's face. And Santa looks a little apprehensive. You know, because Santa is looking around him and sees there are no children there. And and he walks up to Santa and he says, can I help you? And Santa says, and Tom says, no, but I want to tell you, do you realize that you're probably the only adult that has spoken to any of these children today? And just listened. You're probably the only adult that spent more than 60 seconds just affirming them and telling them that they're a good boy or girl. You're probably the only adult who has asked them and minted, What do you want? And I just had to tell you. And as he told Santa that, Santa just broke into tears and then hugged Tom. And they stood there for a minute and then Santa said, would you like to sit down? <laughs> and so Tom sat down, not in his lap, but 
sat down beside him. The photographer comes over and says, would you like a picture? Tom says, no, don't want a picture. But they just sat there in silence for a couple of minutes until the elf came and said, it's time for you to go. And Tom said, just before he left, he looked up to the fourth level and there was his wife, Debbie, just looking over the rail at him doing this. Tom is a vulnerable guy. He's a man of great courage. He, and it's the same thing that God has called us to think about. Are we ready? Are we willing to open ourselves up in that way? Not just like Tom. Nobody should be just like Tom. But even a little bit, are you willing to just ask God that, to make you ready for anybody that he would put in your path? And that you'll just open yourself up in a generous way, not a transactional way, to make a difference in that person's life. That's what this Tipping Point series is all about, is us being people who live our lives differently because of who Jesus is in our life. And so I'm going to give you a chance to practice this. Scare you? And it's real simple and it's really not threatening at all. All I'm gonna ask you to do is turn and look to the person, look at the person to your right. Now, because you just saw the back of their head, now turn and look at the person to your left. Now, you remember the person to your right? Look back at them, okay. So here's what I want you to do. For 15 seconds, I'm gonna ask you, whether you know that person or not, to pray for them. Just close your eyes if you would, and the person to your right, would you just pray for them? 15 seconds. Amen. Would you stand? So I know what you're thinking. What about the person to the left? <laughs> you're on your own for that. <laughs> so let me just give you this reminder of some things that we want to be sure you know. One is that be sure you pick up one of these, uh, if you don't have one, one of these brochures about the, the Tipping Point or visit the Tipping Point website, tippingpoint.northlandchurch.net. We need three more homes for the Kiev Symphony Orchestra in Chorus. We'll be happy to take yours. Uh, if you would stop in the hub, you can let them know that you're willing to do that. Online, your ministers are Bill Geary and Nathan Clark. We'll have a team of folks praying in the front here. If you've never trusted Jesus in any other way in your life, could you trust him to be your friend? Because that's what he's called you to be, to him and to anyone else that he brings into your path. So let's go from these rooms, looking for how we can be friends in this world 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.